The cracking of wood and the splintering of cables echoed through the streets, with wind howling in the ears of the city's citizens and snow biting at their noses. It seemed like the chaos would never stop, with snow piling up in embankments throughout town and the streets becoming useless for traffic. People huddled in their homes, pressed up against the glass and watching it blow down power line after power line. The White Hurricane. Welcome to Shipwreck Sunday. My name is Eleanor. Just a quick disclaimer for our younger audience before we dive in. This story may be disturbing to some, so viewer discretion is advised. Okay, everyone, let's get into it. Before we get into the meat and potatoes of this story, I'm going to give you some background information. For people like me who do not live near the Great Lakes or are younger audience members, you might not know that there are five Great Lakes. Superior, Michigan, Huron, Erie, and Ontario. The Great Lakes border the United States and Canada, and they are so large they behave much like oceans. There are gales, there are waves, and there are over 6,000 shipwrecks lying at the bottom of the lakes. Well, they are also prone to being affected by weather systems, just like oceans. The lakes are able to hold heat that allow them to stay relatively warm later into the year than oceans do, and this postpones cooling and first frosts in the area. During fall, two major weather tracks converge over the lakes, and the cold, dry air from the north moves steadily south and southeast from Alberta, Canada and northern Canada, and this is called an Alberta Clipper or an Alberta Cyclone. While this is happening, warm, humid air from the south moves northward and northeast from the Gulf of Mexico along the lee of the central Rocky Mountains, and this is called the Colorado Low. These two air systems collide over the Great Lakes and form massive storm systems in the middle of the North American continent. When the cold air from these storm systems passes over the lakes, the warm waters below it warms up the air and turns the storm up a notch. The jet stream above and the warm waters below create a large cyclonic system that turns into what we call a November storm, November gale, or November witch. These storms can maintain hurricane-forced wind gusts, dump significant falls of rain or snow, and create waves well over 50 feet or 15 meters high. The warm air coming up from the lakes can feed these storm systems, and they can remain over the lakes for multiple days at a time. There have been many memorable November storms that were quite large, with at least 25 killer storms affecting the area since 1847, and we will talk about one today. There are others, however, and during the Matafa storm of 1905, 27 wooden ships were lost. During an infamous November storm in 1975, SS Edmund Fitzgerald quickly sank and took her entire crew with her. We do have an episode covering the Mighty Fitz if you are interested. The waves on the Great Lakes are no joke either. Due to how large the lakes are, there are hundreds of miles of lake without obstacles for waves to develop, and it also results in higher wind speeds than inland areas. Rogue waves are known to occur on the Great Lakes, with some being reinforced by reflections from the vertical shores of some of the lakes, and one of the types of rogue waves is called the Three Sisters. The Three Sisters is a phenomenon said to occur in Lake Superior when a series of three large waves forms. 
The second wave hits the ship's deck before the first wave clears, and the third wave adds to the two accumulated backwashes and will overload the ship deck with tons of water. Even shallower waves on the Great Lakes are bad, and this is because all waves can be steeper and closer together than on the ocean, which does not allow sufficient recovery time for ships. The Great Lakes are also smaller than oceans and have less maneuvering sea room and are closer to the shores, which makes it more difficult for ships weathering storms. We have covered a ship that disappeared and likely sank to rogue waves, and that ship was SS Waratah. November storms are very common and can be very deadly. The Great Lakes storm of 1913 is an infamous example of that, having lost and stranded multiple vessels. The storm was first noticed on Thursday, November 6, 1913, and on the western side of Lake Superior, and it was moving rapidly northward toward Lake Michigan. Everyone was expecting a normal November storm and not something of the magnitude they received in actuality. So newspapers like the Detroit News forecasted, quote, moderate to brisk winds at the Great Lakes with occasional rain on Thursday or Friday night for the upper lakes and fair to unsettled conditions on the lower lakes. Well, it only took one ship to prove them wrong. And this first ship was the steamer Cornell, which was 50 miles or 80 kilometers west of Whitefish Point in Lake Superior around midnight on November 6th and 7th, when she was suddenly caught in a northerly gale and was severely damaged. This gale lasted until November 10th and almost pushed Cornell ashore. Another thing we need to keep in mind is that ships built before 1948 are often built with more sulfur within the iron or steel used to build them, and this therefore would make them more brittle when they came in contact with the colder November waters of the Great Lakes. The lakes are warmer than oceans in November, but they are still freezing cold and cool off in the winter months. Let's get a brief overview before we dive into a day-by-day -day account of the storm. The Great Lakes Storm of 1913, also nicknamed the White Hurricane, lasted from November 6, 1913 to November 11, 1913, and it would affect the Great Lakes Basin and Ontario, Canada. Unfortunately, it is 1913, so the U.S. Weather Bureau just did not have enough data, analysis capability, communication, or understanding of atmospheric dynamics to accurately forecast or understand the storm that was coming. They also could not predict wind directions to allow ships to avoid or cope with the effects of the storm, and this would prove deadly for several vessels. By November 7th, a string of low-pressure centers in Canada consolidated into a low-pressure center southwest of Lake Superior, and this became what was called Storm Number 1. At the same time, warm air pushed into the central Great Lakes from the south, and as we know from earlier, these changes in temperature and pressure colliding is what causes huge storms like this. By November 8th, storm number one was moving east through northern Lake Huron, while strong northerly winds developed behind the storm over Lake Superior. By November 9th, a storm called Storm Number 2 formed over the Carolinas and Virginia, with the northern part of this storm sweeping warm, humid Atlantic Ocean air over colder air in the Ohio area, causing heavy snowfall. This storm was extremely powerful, and the northwest part of it began creating strong winds from the north along Lake Huron, building enormous waves. By November 10th, 24 hours of building up these large waves had made them simply massive and unbearable. And on top of this, the ships out in it were also subjected to high winds as the center of the storm crossed north-northwest over Lake Erie near Toronto, Canada. 
Winds were strong, exceeding hurricane force over four of the Great Lakes for long stretches of time, with wave heights being observed well over 35 feet or 11 meters. It is important to note that wave heights during the storm were estimated by direct observation rather than measurement, so this isn't an exact figure. These estimates were pretty close to modern-day estimation, which put the wave height at 38 feet or 12 meters. These wave heights can be doubled by interaction between waves, such as those reflected from vertical shorelines. And so some waves were observed to be as high as 50 feet or 15 meters. And this includes a massive wave that entirely crushed the bridge of LC Waldo. So now we've got a basic rundown of the storm. Let's go day by day and see what damage was really done. But first of all, if you're enjoying this video, leave me a like, subscribe to the channel for more content, and let me know down in the comments section below. Okay, back to the story. On Friday, November 7th, 1913, nobody was expecting the storm they'd receive, with the Port Huron Times-Herald of Port Huron, Michigan, predicting the weather to be, quote, moderately severe, when in actuality the word severe couldn't even accurately describe what was coming. In this same weather forecast, temperatures were predicted to drop and winds were expected to increase over the following 24 hours. By 10 a.m., the Coast Guard stations and all 112 United States Department of Agriculture Weather Bureau signal stations on the Great Lakes were advised via a directive to hoist a square signal flag. This signal flag would be red with a black center and a red triangular maritime pennant below it, and this would signify that a storm with 55 mile per hour or 89 kilometer per hour winds would blow in from the southwest. After sundown, this flag was replaced by a square white flag with a red lantern over it to signify winds coming in from the west. The winds on Lake Superior were already over 60 miles per hour, or 97 kilometers per hour, with gusts up to 80 miles per hour, or 130 kilometers per hour. At the same time, a blizzard was blowing in toward Lake Huron. In Duluth, Minnesota, sustained wind speeds reached 62 miles per hour, or 100 kilometers per hour, with gusts up to 68 miles per hour, or 109 kilometers per hour. This would lead into Saturday, November 8th, 1913. The storm was officially labeled as severe, just given the first day of chaos. Again at 10 a.m., the USDA Weather Bureau offices and Coast Guard stations at Lake Superior ports raised flags, this time white pennants above square red flags with black centers, and this indicated a storm warning with northwesterly winds. The storm was directly over the center of Lake Superior, covering the entirety of the lake basin. Northwesterly winds had reached gale strength on western Lake Superior and northern Lake Michigan by this point, and the Port Huron Times-Herald reported that the winds remained, quote, moderate to brisk. Despite the fact that gale wind flags were raised at more than 100 ports in the area, captains continued their journeys. They had jobs to do and schedules to keep, and it wasn't uncommon during the Edwardian period to see ship owners, operators, or captains take some risks to maintain strict schedules. Great Lakes freighters traveled through the St. Mary's River all day on November 8th, switching to the Strait of Mackinac during the night, and up to the, to the Detroit and St. Clair Rivers early the following morning on November 9th, but we aren't quite there yet. L.C. Waldo, a 472-foot or 143.9-meter steel bulk freighter that we mentioned earlier, was on Lake Superior and was overrun by enormous waves out of the northwest, just 18 hours out of Two Harbors, Minnesota. 
A large rogue wave, estimated to be 50 feet or 15 meters tall, smashed the bridge about 45 miles or 72.4 kilometers northeast of the Keweenaw Peninsula. It also bent the steel floor of the compass room, tore three walls out of the Texas, and swept the wheelsmen clean out of the wheelhouse. The Texas they are referring to is a structure or section of a steamboat that includes the crew's quarters, and this is located on the hurricane deck below the bridge, also nicknamed the Texas Deck. Immediately, the captain ordered the ship to turn around and seek shelter behind the Keweenaw Peninsula, and according to the second mate, quote, the wind sent on gigantic wave after another over parts of the ship. The snow was so blinding that none of us could see 50 feet ahead. Shortly after, the rudder failed, and so steering the ship was now impossible. Without it, the ship was helpless and the 70 mile per hour wind slammed the ship on Gull Rock near Manitou Island. The bow was wedged fast into the rocks, with the hull completely shredded and a crack starting to form up on deck. Due to this, the captain ordered everyone to the bow and that the ship should be flooded to keep it from washing way into the lake where it would surely sink. The steward's wife and her mother were aboard, and both were fearful of leaving the stern, so the crew had to carry them. They struggled against the 70 mile per hour blizzard on the open deck and over an ever-widening crack in the deck while carrying the two women to the safety of the bow, though they made it. During all of this, the chief engineer and two stokers ran the ship at full power to try and wedge the bow even further onto the shore and to anchor themselves there. Then they abandoned their posts and took shelter in the unheated windlass room with everyone else. If you want to hear another harrowing tale of survival and death on the lakes, check out our episode on SS Carl D. Bradley. If you're on an audio-only format like Spotify, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, or another podcast service, make sure to subscribe for more episodes and leave us a five-star review since it helps us reach more listeners like you. Check out our community tab on YouTube to keep up with us, and we are also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Okay, back to the story. On Sunday, November 9th, 1913, the weather conditions were close to normal for a November storm on Lake Huron by noon that day. Even barometric pressures in some areas started rising, hopefully indicating the end of the storm, but we all know that isn't true. It's just that the low pressure area that had moved across Lake Superior was moving northeast, away from the lakes, but the storm was not yet headed that way. Here's where we start to see some of the poor communication at the Weather Bureau. They began their twice daily reports at approximately 8 a.m. that day. Seems good, right? Well, it wasn't nearly enough, and the second report wouldn't be issued until 8 p.m., which gave the entire day for the hurricane-force winds to build, so the office in Washington, D.C. wouldn't have detailed information to go off of. With that, we get into another of the Great Lakes, Lake Erie. Along the southeastern portion of Lake Erie near Erie, Pennsylvania, a southern low-pressure area was moving toward the lake. And, to make matters worse, it had formed overnight and therefore was not on Friday, November 7th's weather map. It had been moving north but shifted northwestward after passing over Washington, D.C. This low-pressure system had such an intense counterclockwise rotation that was quickly made apparent by the changing wind directions around its center, and in Buffalo, New York, 
Morning northwest winds shifted to northeast by noon and to southeast by 5 p.m. Gusts up to 80 miles per hour or 130 kilometers per hour started happening between 1 and 2 p.m. in Buffalo. In Cleveland, Ohio, roughly 180 miles or 290 kilometers to the southwest, the winds remained northwest during the day but shifted at 5 p.m. to the west. They maintain speeds upwards of 50 miles per hour or 80 kilometers per hour, with the fastest gusts reaching 79 miles per hour or 127 kilometers per hour, and this was recorded at 4.40 p.m. Back in Buffalo, barometric pressure dropped dramatically between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m., signifying a storm passing over the area. This rotating low-pressure system moved northward into the evening, its counterclockwise winds mixing in with the northwesterly winds already hitting Lakes Huron and Superior. This would dramatically increase the northerly wind speeds and the amount of swirling snow. Ships on Lake Huron south of Alpena, Michigan, experienced huge waves moving southward toward the St. Clair River. This was especially prevalent near Sarnia and Godrich, Ontario, Canada and Port Huron and Harbor Beach, Michigan. Some of these ships sought refuge hugging the Michigan shoreline or between Point Edward and Godrich. Three of the larger ships that did this were found upside down, which indicated extremely high winds and enormously tall waves. Between 8 p.m. and midnight on November 9th, the storm became what is called a weather bomb also known as explosive cyclogenesis, which is the rapid deepening of an extratropical cyclonic low-pressure area. Essentially, the storm held its hurricane speed winds that reached upward of 90 miles per hour or 110 kilometers per hour on the four western lakes, Lakes Superior, Michigan, Huron, and Erie. The worst of the damage was seen on Lake Huron's southern end where ships desperately sought shelter. Gusts of wind off Harbor Beach, Michigan were reportedly at 90 miles per hour or 140 kilometers per hour. Lake Huron is long and slightly curved, so the northerly winds hugged the shape of the lake and were unimpeded due to less surface friction. In 1913, the weather forecasters simply didn't have enough understanding or data of atmospheric dynamics in order to comprehend or predict the events of Sunday, November 9th, making them practically unexplainable at that time. Frontal mechanisms, also called squall lines, were not yet understood, and surface observations were only collected twice daily as we stated earlier. To add to this, data was collected and maps were then hand-drawn, with the information no longer being representative of the actual weather conditions by that point in time because of how many hours had passed between data collections. Moving into Monday, November 10th and Tuesday, November 11th, the storm had finally moved northeast of London, Ontario on Monday morning. Lake effects blizzards were still in full swing, with an additional 17 inches or 43 centimeters of snow falling in Cleveland that day. This filled the streets with snowdrifts 6 feet or 1.8 meters high, and streetcar operators had to stay with their stranded, powerless vehicles for two nights, eating only the food generously provided by local residents. For travelers, they had to seek shelter and just wait the storm out. By Tuesday, November 11th, the storm was rapidly moving across eastern Canada and heading toward the Atlantic. Without the warmth from the Great Lakes, it quickly died out, carrying far less snowfall due to the lack of lake effect snow and its incredible speed. Because of what had happened near the lakes, all shipping along the St. Lawrence River near Montreal, Quebec was stopped on Monday and part of Tuesday. 
We have covered a ship that met her bitter end in the St. Lawrence River, and that ship is the ocean liner RMS Empress of Ireland. There was a lot of damage left in the wake of the storm. It was and is still the deadliest, most destructive natural disaster in recorded history to ever hit the Great Lakes. In total, the Great Lakes storm of 1913 killed 250 people, destroyed or sank 12 ships, and stranded 31 other vessels. Roughly $1 million of cargo weighing in at 68,300 tons, which was mostly grain, iron ore, and coal, was lost. Along the shorelines of the Great Lakes, blizzards halted communication and traffic altogether, causing hundreds of thousands of dollars of damage. In Cleveland, there were sustained winds of 62 miles per hour or 100 kilometers per hour, with gusts reaching 79 miles per hour or 127 kilometers per hour. They also received 22 inches or 56 centimeters of wet, heavy snow as well as ice formation. Four foot or 120 centimeter tall snowdrifts surrounded Lake Huron, creating a barrier around the lake. Electricity was cut off for several days spanning across Michigan and Ontario, and this disrupted telegraph and telephone communications in these areas. A breakwater, which is a permanent structure constructed at a coastal area to protect against tides, currents, storm surges, and waves, was constructed at Chicago and cost $100,000 at the time, and it was built to protect the Lincoln Park Basin from storms. Well, this breakwater was completely swept away in just a few hours. The harbor in Milwaukee, Wisconsin lost its southern breakwater as well, and much of the South Park area that had been recently renovated was also swept away. Back in Cleveland, when the final blizzards hit the city, they were paralyzed under feet of ice and snow and went days without power. Telephone poles snapped like toothpicks and power cables lay about in tangled masses like balls of yarn. Nearly all of the railroad traffic was stopped for days. Because of the severity of the storm, there was unfortunately a small death toll in Cleveland. Sources describe some deaths from accidents, one death and one near death from downed power lines, and one freezing death. After the blizzard, the city of Cleveland began a campaign to move all utility cables underground in tubes beneath major streets, which is the way most utility cables are nowadays. This project would take five years to complete. As for the aftermath on the lakes themselves, there's a lot of shipwrecks and ship strandings we need to cover. Major shipwrecks happened on all of the lakes except Lake Ontario, and most of the shipwrecks happened on Lake Huron in the southern and southwestern portions. Captains who survived the storm on Lake Huron were quoted as seeing waves that were minimum 35 feet or 11 meters tall. Normally, gales didn't create waves that occurred in such rapid succession or that were this short in length, and this was dangerous for the vessels out on the lake. The rocky shores of the Great Lakes reflect waves rather than absorbing them, and reflected waves can combine with the incoming waves to create a huge rogue wave up to 50 feet or 15 meters. This is what ships were facing, and especially with steel and iron content of these vessels containing higher levels of sulfur and therefore being more fragile, it put these ships in critical danger. An unknown vessel was sighted bobbing upside down in the waves in roughly 60 feet or 18 meters of water on the eastern coast of Michigan near the mouth of the St. Clair River and within sight of Heronia Beach in the later part of the afternoon on Saturday, November 10, 1913. 
The public was flabbergasted, and it immediately became a national interest to identify the mystery ship floating in the waves. Daily front-page newspaper articles highlighted this vessel, up until it sank. The ship was identified on November 15th as SS Charles S. Price. An assistant engineer who decided at the last moment not to join his crew due to a bad feeling in the pit of his stomach, Milton Smith, helped in identifying the bodies from the wreckage. Among the debris stirred up by the storm was the wreckage of the fish tug searchlight, which had been lost six years earlier in April of 1907. Financially, the storm was devastating as well, with a total loss of approximately $4,780,000, which in 2023 equates to $148,552,261. This would include $2,332,000 for completely lost ships, $830,900 for vessels that were deemed constructive total losses, $1 million in lost cargoes, and $620,000 for ships stranded but that did eventually return to service. This figure does exclude losses in coastal cities, unfortunately. The storm was a primary cause of damage on the lakes, but human factors will always be part of the equation, and that includes measures that could have and probably should have been taken to reduce the storm's effects, but they were unfortunately not taken. Post-storm conversations did play the blame game, but ultimately highlighted weaknesses that needed to be pointed out. Of course, as we talked about earlier, the U.S. Weather Bureau was not able to predict the storm, but they were hesitant to admit their limitations because they wanted to secure higher budgets. Money always talks. Instead, they were lasered in on the nature of warnings and the terminology used. Something else we need to take into account is the fact that large ships were underpowered, and this severely limited their ability to maneuver, travel, and hold steady in severe storms. Even with both anchors dropped and steaming full power into the wind, several ships were still carried backward and lost control. For example, take SS Charles S. Price we mentioned earlier. She was 504 feet or 154 meters long and only had a single 1,760 horsepower engine. The shipyard didn't learn their lesson though, building a 587 foot or 179 meter long ship that only had 1,800 horsepower. Now we are getting into a subject I'm not great at. Geometry. The locks of the Great Lakes and the Great Lakes themselves have long skinny geometry, and this demands long, slim, and shallower ships than ocean-going ships, which reduces stability and structural strength. This as well as the iconic straight deck design were becoming more and more popular, which required more large hatch covers, and this increased vulnerability to storms. The insufficient strength of the cargo hatches and their fastenings was a factor that played into ship sinkings during the storm, as well as the shortness of the 12-inch or 30-centimeter hatch combings, which is any vertical surface on a ship designed to deflect or prevent entry of water. The limited compartmentalization of the cargo holds also meant that these ships couldn't even withstand one compartment flooding. To compare, Titanic could withstand four compartments flooding. Also, it was not common practice to trim or level the pyramid-shaped piles of bulk solid cargo, and this made them more prone to shifting and causing a capsize. Many voiced their concerns about the practice of shipping companies pressuring or incentivizing captains to sail during the November season, which is incredibly dangerous. And these concerns only grew louder, being echoed 62 years later after SS Edmund Fitzgerald foundered. 
Though there were these concerns, few of them were acted upon. There was one change that was made, and that was that the Weather Service clarified their previous ambiguity and said that they would post a higher-than-gale level warning for storms that were to be of utmost severity. This episode couldn't be possible without our lovely patrons. Thank you all so much! If you'd like to support the channel and future episodes, go to patreon.com slash shipwrecksunday to join. Okay, let's get into the shipwrecks. I'm going to list the 12 ships completely lost on each of the four Great Lakes where ships foundered during the Great Lakes Storm of 1913, as well as their death tolls and the cost of damages, including the cargo and ship itself. And we will start with Lake Superior. On Lake Superior, SS Leefield sank near Angus Island, killing all 18 of her crew and losing $100,000 worth of steel rails. SS Henry B. Smith sank near Marquette, Michigan, killing all 23 of her crew and losing $350,000 of iron ore. On Lake Michigan, the schooner barge Plymouth sank near Gull Island, killing all 7 of her crew and losing $5,000 of lumber. On Lake Erie, the United States lightship LV-82 Buffalo sank near Point Abano, Ontario, Canada, killing all six of her crew. The ship lost no cargo, but still cost $25,000 in damages and was later raised and scrapped. Finally, on Lake Huron, SS Argus sank near Point Aubarts, Michigan, killing all 28 of her crew and losing $136,000 of coal. SS James Carruthers sank near Godrich, Ontario, killing all 22 of her crew and losing $410,000 of grain. SS Hydrus sank near Godrich, Ontario, killing all 28 of her crew and losing $136,000 of iron ore. SS John A. McGean sank near Sturgeon Point, Michigan, killing between 22 and 28 of her 28-man crew, sources differ, and losing $240,000 of coal. SS Charles S. Prince capsized and sank near Port Huron, Michigan, killing all 28 of her crew and losing $340,000 of coal. SS Regina sank near Harbor Beach, Michigan, killing all 20 of her crew and losing $125,000 of steel pipe and package freight. SS Isaac M. Scott sank near Sturgeon Point, Michigan, killing all 28 of her crew and losing $340,000 of coal. And finally, SS Wexford sank 8.6 miles north-northeast of Grand Bend, Ontario, Canada, killing between 17 to 24 crew members. Either way, it is her entire crew, but sources differ on how many crew were aboard. SS Wexford also lost $125,000 in steel rails when she foundered. Now we will cover 30 of the estimated 31 ships that were stranded, starting with Lake Superior. SS Fred G. Hartwell was stranded near Point Iroquois, Michigan and cost $30,000 in damages, later being rebuilt. SS Heronic was stranded near Whitefish Point, Michigan and cost $30,000 in damages, and her fate is unknown. SS J.T. Hutchinson was stranded near Point Iroquois, Michigan and cost $40,000 in damages, and her fate is unknown. SS Major was stranded near Crisp Point, Michigan, and cost an unknown figure in damages, later being rebuilt. SS William Nottingham was stranded near Whitefish Bay, Michigan, with three of her crew going missing and being pronounced dead after they'd volunteered to take a lifeboat and search for help. The Nottingham cost $75,000 in damages and faced an unknown fate. 
SS Scottish hero was stranded and has never been found, costing $500 in damages. SS Turret Chief was stranded near Copper Harbor, Michigan and cost an unknown figure in damages, being rebuilt in 1914 as SS Salver. SS LC Waldo was stranded near Gull Rock, Michigan and lost an unknown figure in damages, being rebuilt in 1916 as SS Riverton. On the St. Mary's River, SS Meaford was stranded, though virtually nothing is known about her, including damages or her fate afterward. Moving on to Lake Michigan, the barge Halstead was stranded near Washington Harbor, Washington Island, Wisconsin, and cost an unknown figure in damages, and we don't know what happened to her. SS Louisiana was stranded near Washington Harbor, Washington Island, Wisconsin, and cost an unknown figure in damages, later burning to the waterline and sinking. SS Pontiac was stranded on Simmons Reef and cost $7,500 in damages, though we don't know what happened to her after this. On the St. Clair and Detroit Rivers, SSWG Pollock was stranded near St. Clair Flats and cost $5,000 in damages, but we don't know what happened to her. SS Saxona was stranded near Lake St. Clair and cost $1,500 in damages, and we have no clue what happened to her either. SS Victory was stranded near Livingston Channel and cost $12,000 in damages, and we couldn't find what happened to her. On Lake Erie, the barge Donaldson was stranded near Cleveland, Ohio, and cost $800 in damages. SSCW Elphick was already stranded before the storm near Long Point, Ontario, Canada, and cost an unknown figure in damages, and was lost to the lakes. SS Fulton was stranded near Bar Point and cost $2,500 in damages, though we don't have any information on her fate after this. SSGJ Grammar was stranded near Lorraine, Ohio and cost $1,500 in damages, and she was later refloated. Multiple unmanned Pittsburgh Steamship Company barges were stranded near Cleveland, Ohio and cost $100,000 in damages, and we don't know what happened to them. And finally, on Lake Huron, SS Acadian was stranded near Thunder Bay, Michigan and cost $30,000 in damages, and we don't know where she is. Lightship number 61, also called Corsica Shoals, was forced from Corsica Shoals to Point Edward, Canada and reportedly contributed to the loss of SS Matthew Andrews, and she'd later be refloated. Speaking of SS Matthew Andrews, she was stranded at Corsica Shoals and cost $2,500 in damages, also being refloated. SS Howard M. Hanna Jr. was stranded near Port Austin, Michigan and cost an unknown figure in damages, later being rebuilt in 1916. SS Henry A. Hawgood was stranded near Weiss Beach and cost $7,000 in damages, later being refloated. SS J.M. Jenks was stranded near Georgian Bay and cost $25,000 in damages, though her fate is unknown. SS Matoa was stranded near Point of Barks, Michigan and cost $117,000 in damages. SS D.O. Mills was stranded near Harbor Beach, Michigan and cost $45,000 in damages and was later refloated. SS Northern Queen was stranded at Kettle Point 44, Ontario, Canada and cost $25,000 in damages and we don't know what happened to her. And last but not least, SS A.E. Stewart was lost near Thunder Bay, Michigan and cost $30,000 and was later refloated. Some of the ships lost were the newest and largest ships on the Great Lakes, meeting terrible fates. Most of the bodies of those who died in these shipwrecks were recovered on the Canadian shores of northern Lake Huron, drifting hundreds of miles away from their sinking locations. 
I estimate between 250 and 263 victims of the shipwrecks of this storm, and this includes the three men lost on SS William Nottingham. This storm was absolutely enormous, and it is still one of the largest storms in history. There is another famous November storm on the lakes called the Big Blow, and if you'd like me to cover that one, let me know. The takeaway from this story is pretty simple. Accurate weather predictions can mean life and death, and no rigorous schedule is worth risking the lives of a ship's captain and crew. To all of the victims of the Great Lakes Storm of 1913, rest in peace and I hope they've found solace. That is the wild story of the Great Lakes Storm of 1913 and concludes our first episode on a natural disaster. If you liked that story and wanted to hear something else on the Great Lakes, check out our episode on SS Eastland, an ocean liner that capsized. Thank you for tuning in to Shipwreck Sunday. Stay tuned next week for the story of SS Edward Y. Townsend, the sister ship of the ill-fated SS Daniel J. Morrell that met a mysterious end in the Atlantic. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.